Holy Spirit, thank you for your presence here in the body of Christ, here in the local body of Christ, here at Calvary Chapel Irma. Lord, we pray that you move mightily, that you move mightily in our midst, you move mightily in our hearts, you move mightily in our minds. Father, I pray for the other churches in the area that are worshiping right now. Holy Spirit, I pray that you move in those, in those churches too, that you move across our land throughout the body of Christ and change us and transform us more into your image. Lord, we love you and we thank you. Thank you for the Lord's day, the day that you rose from the grave and we get to celebrate it every single Sunday. We start the week off celebrating you and worshiping you. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, Father. All God's people said, amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Starting a new book this morning. Yay! Okay. I love starting new books. It's kind of a change. It's a new study, a new thing, something new we get to learn. We are studying the book of Jude. Jude. 25 verses, 640 words that we get to study. This uh, chapter's got 25 verses. Lord willing, I'm going to cover it in three Sundays. I'm going to break it into three parts. So today is the introduction. But the message of Jude is a call for believers to guard and defend the truth of Christianity in a world filled with error, in a world filled with apostasy, error, and false teachers around us. We're going to see that in Scripture. I'm going to show you what what Peter says, what John says, uh, what Paul says. Every single New Testament author mentions the fact that there will be false teachers. So we're going to be looking at that this morning. But Jude is one of the most neglected books of the New Testament. I wonder why. The theme of this book is judgment, false teachers, apostasy. So there's not a lot of commentary out there on it because it's, 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 it's not taught on a lot. But we're going to dive into it uh, verse by verse. What's interesting, an interesting uh, thought on Jude, fact on Jude, is uh, the focus of Jude is false teachers and apostasy. And the name of the book is Jude. What's the Greek name for Jude? Anybody know? Judas. Judas. In the Greek, uh, is, is, is Judas. So don't be a Judas. And we know what Judas is well known for. His apostasy. His turning his back on Christ. Falling away. Apostasy. Uh, buying the lies of Satan and going the opposite direction. I want to lay this book out for you as we study it uh, over today and the next two Sundays. Hopefully the next two Sundays. Um, but the outline of Jude is this. Verses 1 through 4 is a call to defend. A call for you and I to defend the truth. We are called to be defenders of the truth. For, for, the, for the faith that's been once and for all given to the saints. This is every Christian's responsibility. Not just the pastor, not just the, the theologian or the apologetics guys. It's the call of every believer to defend the faith. Verses 5 through 16, which we'll get into next week, is the description of false teachers. The description of false teachers. And boy, we are in for some very colorful language. I, I encourage you to read ahead and look at verses 5 through 16 this coming up week because we'll study them next Sunday. And then verses 17 through 25, I love, I love the layout of Jude. After he, the call to defend and the description of false teachers, he teaches us in verse 17 through 25 how to guard yourself from apostasy 
and false teachers. And we need to know that. So without further ado, let's dive into the book of Jude. I'm, gonna re- I'm only going to teach through the first four verses this morning. And then um, we will uh, pray and then go back and look at it uh, verse by verse. So let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this new study. We get to open your word, Father, this living and active, sharper than any two double-edged sword. Thank you for the book of Jude, Lord. You put it here in your word to teach us. So help us, Lord, this morning to learn from your word. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, amen. Amen. Jude, verse 1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing for you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So what we're looking at this morning, verses 1 through 4, I'm titling The Call to Defend. Now, I gave you an outline of the whole book. Now I'm going to give you an outline of these four verses. We're going to zoom in real close this morning and look very closely at this text. But the outline for these first four verses is verses 1 through 2 is the army. The army. We're going to see who is the army that's called to defend. Then we're going to look at verse 3, which is the command. Then we're going to look at our weaponry, our artillery, what we use to fight error and false teaching with, verse 3. And then verse 4, we're going to look at the enemy. So let's look at the army in verses 1 through 2. Take a look at Jude 1. Jude 1 says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, those who are the called, Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So the first thing we have here is we're introduced to Jude. And Jude, we know, is the half-brother of Jesus, the half-brother of James. In this opening verse, it speaks of Jude's transformation. You know, Jude wasn't a follower all of his life. He, didn't, he, he did not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ early on in his life. Matter of fact, Jude thought Jesus was crazy early on. He thought he was crazy. Mark chapter 3 verse 21 says, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. So Jude in the early years said, Jesus, he's cuckoo. He's crazy. And he did not believe in John chapter 7 verse 5. It says, for not even his brothers were believing him. What changed Jude? What transformed Jude? We see him before his salvation. He thought Jesus was crazy. He did not believe. What changed Jude? His Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Okay? Even his own family did not believe in him as the eternal son of God, the Messiah the one sent to this world to die on the cross and rise from the grave. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, it grabbed their attention. 
It grabbed their attention. It would grab your attention too if your brother or sister rose from the grave. Okay? So what changed Jude, what made him uh, become a follower of Christ is, res- is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Acts chapter 1 verse 14 says, These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So we see pictures of Jesus' family early on before. But now, after Jesus' resurrection, Jude describes himself as what? Look at it. If, if you have an NASB, a bondservant. If you have an ESV, a slave. Uh, some of the translations say a slave. But Jude is now a bondservant, a doulos. He is literally a slave. He is a slave in complete surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends and family, that's what Christianity is. Is we surrender our rights. We surrender our life. Of how we expect life to be. And we surrender our life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He is in charge. He is the master. And we follow and do what our master says. And also another thing too, in the first century, bond servants were committed to their masters for all of their life. And the reason they called them bond servants is because their master treated them so well. Has Christ treated you well? Has he been good to you? Surrender your life, everything. Let it all be for his honor and for his glory. That's what it means to be a bond servant. And it's interesting, you know, Jude in his pride, if he was carnal, hey, I'm the brother of Jesus. I'm the brother of Jesus. But he, but he doesn't. He says, I'm not the brother of Jesus. I'm now a bondservant of Jesus and the brother of James. So Jude is like the um, messenger from the commander. You know, I said we're the army. We are the army, Jews' army. Jesus is the commander in chief. Jude is the messenger from the commander-in-chief to the body of Christ everywhere that we are the army. So let's look at his, his, his delivery to the, us, the army. Look at the second half of verse 1. To those who are the called, beloved, and God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Okay? The army of God, the believers, are those who are the called. That word called means he chose you. He chose you. He came and knocked on your heart and called you to himself. He called you by name. And the scripture says, he called you out of darkness into his glorious light. It's salvation. All we did was say, yes, Lord. You know, we felt that tug on our heart. We felt his Holy Spirit beginning to work on us. And all you can do is salvation is, say, is, is surrender. And say, yes, Lord, here I am. I want to live my life for you. Please come into my life. Please be my Lord and Savior. I turn from my sin. I no longer consider myself my own master, but now I consider myself a slave to you. That's the call. And also, talking about the army, the army of God, look at verse 1, the end of halfway through verse 1. The army of God are those who are beloved. Those who are beloved. This means, some of your translations say sanctify, but this, this word that's used here in verse 1, it means you are set apart and you are deeply loved by God. 
okay? He has set you apart. He has called you to himself, and he calls you to, to live differently, to live holy. And he, he enables you to live holy by his spirit dwelling inside of you. And understand this, family. You are not just loved, but you are beloved. This speaks of the deep love of God that he has towards his children. You know, the father referred to the son as his beloved son because he had spent all eternity with him. There was a deep, abiding love between the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. And in Christ, he shares that love with you and I through the cross. How amazing is that? The army is not only the called, is not only those who are loved, but look at the, the, the next part of the verse. They are kept for Jesus Christ. This, this speaks of God's sovereignty. This, this speaks of his sovereignty and how he holds you in the palm of his hand. When you surrendered your life to him and said, Jesus, you are Lord, I give my life to you. He holds you in the palm of his hand. He keeps you. Not only does he keep you, but he preserves you throughout life. Because who has a grip on your life? Christ. Jesus has the reins on our life. Listen to Jesus in John chapter 10. Jesus said, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Friends and family, if you are believing in Christ, if you are trusting in Christ, if he is your Lord and Savior, live with eternal security, okay? No one is greater than the Father, okay? No one can pull you out of the Father's hands because he has you. And Jude is affirming that here, kept for Jesus Christ. And then look at verse 2. He says, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. I love this phrase. He says, not only have we experienced mercy and peace and love, but he says be multiplied to you. Why does he use that word multiplied? Because how many of you guys know throughout life, we need this over and over and over. We have to be renewed, family. We have to be renewed in the mercy of God, in the peace of God, in the love of God. A lot of times in our Christian life, we can, we can get sidetracked and we become religious. And God's not looking for religious people. He's looking for people that are filled with his mercy, with his peace, with his love. And if you, my friend, this morning, if you have trusted, if you are trusting in Christ and you have experienced his calling, his love, his sovereignty, his mercy, his peace and love, guess what? You are in the army. So everybody stand up and raise your right hand. No, I'm just kidding. Don't, raise, don't stand up and raise your right hand. But it's the same thing. You are in the army of the Lord, okay? And he calls you and I to love him, to trust him, to live for him. And as we're going to see this morning, to defend the truth. You know, when you join the military, you go through MEPS. You spend a couple days at MEPS and you go through all this processing. They check everything about you, everything physically, mentally, make sure you're fit for service. And then you finally finish the day in the swearing room where you raise your right hand and you, you promise and you swear to defend the Constitution of the United States and obey the president, orders of the president of the United States. And you do all these things. Well, family, when you came to Christ and, and you began the process of discipleship, 
You have entered in to the kingdom of God. You are a disciple. And we have sworn our allegiance as Christians, ultimately in this life, above our family, above our spouse, above this world, we've ultimately given our allegiance. You should have given your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're in the army now. So let's look at the command. The command is found in verse 3. We're really going to break this one down because there's quite a bit here. Uh, Verse 3 says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. So let's break down this verse. Look at it, verse 3. He said, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, In other words, Jude is saying here, hey man, I wanted to write to you about God's love. I wanted to write to you about God's grace. I wanted to write to you about forgiveness of sin. But the Holy Spirit dropped a boulder on my heart. The Holy Spirit has dropped a weight on my heart. Because he says there in verse 3, look at that, that word, the NASB uses the word necessity. He says, I felt the necessity to write to you. This word necessity this used in the original language, it speaks of a pressure. It speaks, it speaks of a, a compression. The Holy Spirit was stirring him and was weighing him down with a burden. And he could not avoid that burden. He had to address that burden. Warren Wearsby says this in his commentary on this verse. He says, Warren Wearsby says, the Holy Spirit led Jude to lay down his harp and sound the trumpet. Because there was an issue going on in the church, and he had to address it. He saw something that was not good. And when you see something that's not good, spiritually speaking, it should burden your heart. When you see something that's wrong, that's not biblical, that's not in a line with Scripture, it, it, it burdens us. It, it, it burdened uh, Jude. You know, there's this, there's this pressure on him. There's this compression on Jude to speak on the subject that we're going to study here for the next couple of weeks. The same thing happens to you and I when we see our brother or sister being influenced by the ungodly world and our heart is burdened. It is weighted down by the Holy Spirit in love to go talk to them, to warn them, not to be judgmental, but because we love them and we care for them. And this pressure that the Spirit put on Jude's heart and this pressure I believe that the Spirit puts on our hearts when we see things that aren't right, it does not go away until we are obedient and we have the conversation with those who we are concerned for. Friends and family, it really just comes down to your body language. It comes down to your body language and how you carry yourself. If you see a brother that's fallen away or you see someone in your family going in a direction they shouldn't be going, if you do it in a spirit of love and a spirit of grace and a spirit of truth, nine times out of ten, they'll accept it. We just can't be judgmental. We can't drop the gavel. We've got we to do it with a sincerity, with a uh, uh, humility, with, with being humble and, and letting people know when we see something that may be wrong. But what Jude sees that's going on in the church in the first century as he's writing this letter, he, is, he, look at, he, he continues... Let's look at it. He says, appealing, their issue that he saw, appealing that you contend earnestly, that you contend earnestly. 
Family and friends, this is our call to arms. This is our call to arms that Jude is bringing to our attention this morning. That we contend earnestly for the faith. The New Living Translation uses the word defend. The Amplified Translation uses the word to fight. And to not only fight, but to fight strenuously. In other words, this is war. The Greek word is epigonizomai. It means to fight for and defend. It was a Greek word used in the first century that was used to describe the gladiators at Rome when they were in the Roman Colosseum and they were to fight to the death. They were to epigonizomai. They were to fight or it could mean death. And that's how we should take our faith. Excuse me. That's how we should take the faith, as we're going to see in the text. The faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and everything the scripture says. We contend earnestly for it. Look at it in, in verse 3. What do we fight for? Notice he says, it says, the, uses the phrase, for the faith. For the faith. In other words, we're not fighting to have faith, okay? This text is not saying, oh man, you gotta fight to just have faith. That's not what he's saying as if the faith dwells inside of you. He's saying fight for the faith. What is the faith? The faith is the body of Christian truth as given to us in the Bible. It is the gospel. It is the call, it, it, it is the call for us to defend what the scripture says. Is it important that we believe that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin? Yes, sir, buddy, it is. We firmly believe and hold to his virgin birth, his death, his resurrection, his miraculous life, the inspiration, the authority of Scripture on, those core, on the core essential doctrines of Christianity. We're not talking about secondary issues of, of, of eschatology and, and, and pneumatology, but, but the core elements of Christianity, the foundational truths we are called to defend them because they are the faith. We're called to, and we're called to defend the faith. This call to defend the faith is not just for pastors. It's not just for teachers. It's not just for scholars. And it's not just for people who study apologetics. This call to defend the faith is for the army of God. It is for every believer who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. It's for every believer who loves God's word. It's for every believer who has experienced the new birth. That is who is called to defend the gospel and who's called to defend biblical truth. That is our command, is we guard it and we defend it. Why is that important? Jesus said in John 8, 32, you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. False teaching, my friend, will not set you free. False teaching will lead you down a religious path, but it'll lead you down a path of bondage. But the truth of the Bible, the truth of Scripture, the truth of the gospel will bring freedom, forgiveness of sin, joy, eternal life. That's why we love the truth. I don't, we, and that's why we don't want false teaching. We, we, want the, we want to defend the faith. Let's look at our weapon. Our weapon is halfway through verse 3. We're, we really broke down verse 3 into 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 parts. Let's look at the fifth part, which is our weapon. Um, he says, once for all handed down to the saints. What was once and for all handed down to the saints? That book in your hand. The Bible. 
That's what, that's, this is what's been handed down once and for all to the saints. Not necessarily the, the book that you're holding in your hand. You most likely purchased it online or at the Christian bookstore. But the words on the pages of Scripture have come down through the centuries from the first century apostles, from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. These things have been handed down, and this Bible is our weapon, okay? This, the, the greatest weapon against error and false teaching is in your hands. This is how we know the truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, what did he say? Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8, for nothing can be done against the truth, but only for the truth. Paul said in Romans chapter 3, he says, what if some do not have faith? What if some do not believe? Will their lack of faith nullify the faithfulness of God? He says, not at all. Let God be true. Every man be a liar. Because the word is firmly established in the heavens, and he's given it to us to keep us in the truth. Walking by grace, walking in the Holy Spirit, and not weighed down by the religion of man, but serving Christ from, from a heart that loves him with all of our hearts. This is our weapon. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The Bible lays out the faith, okay? It lays it out for us. And we trust it, we believe it, we receive it, and we defend it. The Bible tells us what is true. The Bible tells us what is error. It's not rocket science, okay? I believe the Bible is a very plain and simple, uh, the plain and simple word of God that lays out what truth is and what error is. And if, if, the, if all we have is the Bible, then that's all we need for life and godliness how did Jesus, think about this, how did Jesus confront the error of Satan at his temptation? What did he say? What's the opening words of his statement? It is written, okay? If the Lord Jesus Christ on earth, if he had to use the word of God to defeat Satan at his temptation, what, what makes you or I any different? He said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Again, Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. We stand on the scriptures. We stand on the word. And man, this is, this is what makes you strong, family. This is what grows that spirit person on the inside of you, is when you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through studying the Bible. This is how you can know the truth and the truth will set you free by doing what we're doing now and looking at the text. 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 31,103 verses, 807,361 words, written over a 1,500-year period by 40 authors, including prophets, priests, tax collectors, fishermen, shepherds, physicians, and a tent maker. Inspired, infallible, inerrant, and true. I want to read to you one of my favorite passages. It comes from Psalms 
Psalm 19. Psalm 19, if you've, if you've ever studied it before, the opening of Psalm is, talks about the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. It talks about how God has revealed, us, revealed himself to us in creation. But then Psalm 19, verse 7 and 8, says this about Scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect. It is perfect. It, it, it is perfect. It means there's, there's no error. It's the pure word of God, and you can trust it. It restores the soul. The word of God, the law of God, restores our soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You want wisdom? What's wisdom? Wisdom is the art of skillful living. You want wisdom? It comes from right here. It comes from right here. The art of skillful living comes from studying the word and applying the principles that we learn in the scripture. Verse 8 says, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The truth in what is right, it causes our hearts to rejoice. To rejoice and be happy because we know Christ and that, we, and that we're in a right relationship with him. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. I believe that part of the scripture refers to the holiness of God. The word of God teaches us to run from sin and run to the Savior. It teaches us to repent and stay as far away from sin and temptation as possible. To run from it, to flee, to repent, to live holy, dedicated lives for his honor and for his glory. This is our manual. This is our guide in life. This is our Heavenly Father's word spoken directly to us. And as Jude is laying out here, this is our weapon against the errors of false teaching. That's why we live by it. Finally, in our verse-by-verse study this morning, let's look at verse 4. Verse 4 identifies the enemy of the truth. The enemy of the truth. He says in verse 4, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, some believers, they don't like to talk about false teachers. They don't like to talk about apostasy. But I'm here to tell you, it's very important that we understand false teaching and that we, that we talk about false teachers. Why is it important that we understand what false teaching is? Again, Jesus said in John 8, 32, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. False teaching will not set you free. False teaching will not bring forgiveness of sin. False teaching will not bring you into a right relationship with Jesus Christ. You know, it's the, it's the straightforward word of God. And we are warned. Again, every single New Testament author mentions or warns against false teaching. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. What do ravenous wolves do? What do they do to their prey? They rip it apart. They rip it apart and they slay it and they kill it. And, and you're like a sheep, friends and family. You're, you're like a Christian sheep. 
And a false teacher will come in and shred you to pieces and tear apart your faith in your walk with Christ. Paul said, that was Jesus. I'm just going through each of the New Testament authors. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 30, he says, be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he has purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, here's that phrase again, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So within, throughout church history, within, within uh, the world of Christianity, false teachers will arise. They will arise from, from within the body of Christ. And, and they will teach things that are contrary to Scripture. They, it says they will be speaking perverse things. Perverse things, are, it's like when you hear it like, oh, that ain't biblical. That ain't true. That's not what the Bible says. It'll be very blatant. And it says they will draw away the disciples after them. One of the signs of a false teacher is they'll say, follow me. You know, they'll, they'll try to draw people and collect a crowd of people for themselves. You know what? As, as ministers and pastors and missionaries and evangelists, no pastor, no minister should ever say, follow me. I mean, you hear that, that's a warning sign. A, a faithful pastor, a faithful shepherd, a faithful teacher, a faithful evangelist will say, don't follow me, follow Christ. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's Jesus, that's Paul. What did Peter say? Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 2, he says, false prophets were among God's people in the past as false teachers will be among you. Peter said, they will be throughout the church age. There will be them. They, they, they will be there because the Satan will be operating through these guys throughout the church age. It says they will secretly bring in their own destructive teachings. They will deny the Lord who has bought them, and they will bring themselves swift destruction. Many will follow them in their sexual freedom and will cause others to dishonor the way of truth. In their greed, they will use good-sounding arguments to exploit you. The verdict against them from long ago is still in force, and their destruction is not asleep. So they'll introduce destructive heresies. They'll promote and encourage sexual immorality, which is, is, is the, the, the carnal flesh, the sensuality. They, they will promote these things, uh, Peter says, and they will be throughout the church age. And we have to guard and defend against those. And then John said, and we we're looking at this morning what Jude says. So look, and what John says is Second uh, John 1.10. He says, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. The point of me referencing all the New Testament authors is, is to address that issue. Well, we shouldn't talk. Let's not talk about false teaching. Let's, let's just leave it alone. No. Every single author of the New Testament warns us. And again... What the, what the authors of the New Testament want is for you to be saved, for you to come into a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, for you to know the truth and the truth to set you free. And again, false teaching, heretical teaching, it will not bring you to the truth because it doesn't preach the truth. They, they avoid the scriptures. But let's look at Jude. Jude, uh, verse 4. Jude gives us here four characteristics 
Four characteristics of a false teacher. He says, for certain persons have what? Crept in unnoticed. In other words, they're not going to start a church or they're not going to come in with a banner that says, hey, I'm a false teacher. They're not going to come in with a banner. It says that they're going to slip in quietly. They're going to slip in quietly and, and, and stealth, in a stealth-like mode and try to deceive people, try to pull people away in. They will creep in unnoticed within the body of the universal body of Christ. They will creep in unnoticed. And then he says, those who are long ago beforehand marked out for this condemnation. I'm going to talk about this portion of verse 4 next week. Basically what he's saying is, just like there were false teachers back in Moses' day, and we're going to get into all the Old Testament examples next week, there will so be false teachers in the days to come. Just like they were marked out for condemnation long ago, when the Israelites turned their back, and it says, God says, your dead bodies will drop in the desert. You will not enter the promised land because people had apostatized. People had turned away from the Lord. Only two people that left Egypt made it into the promised land. The rest of the bodies were dead in the desert because of their apostasy and their falling away. But we're going to talk about before he had marked out for this condemnation. But the next thing he says there is they are ungodly. They are ungodly. Simply means they're not like the Lord. They're not like God. <clears throat> the pattern of their life does not reflect Jesus Christ. They live for the lust of their flesh. Now, when I'm doing ministry with people, I, I, I do ministry in a spirit of grace. And I'm not like overanalyzing and putting the, you know, zooming in on every and looking at them very closely. Because I believe that the, the fruits of being a false teacher are very evident. They will expose themselves. Their immorality will come out. Their adultery will come out. Their lies will come out. Their deception will come out. Don't you worry, okay? Okay? God, God will expose them. And he will bring, the, bring it to light. Because their lives will not reflect that of Christian character. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5 says, They will hold to a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Avoid such men. Again, to, to hold to a form of godliness means they're going to hold to some parts, but then some parts they're just going to completely neglect. They're going to be lukewarm. And it says, but they deny its power. You know, they're going to deny the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Not only do we need the Word of God operating in our life, but we need the power of the Holy Spirit. And these guys will deny it by their ungodliness and, and their patterns of their life that, that will not reflect the Lord Jesus Christ. The third thing in verse 4, he says, uh, Jude says, they turned the grace of God, the grace of our God, into licentiousness. Some of your translations say lewdness. Some of your translations say uh, sensuality. But this word, um, this word, it, it means lewdness, undisciplined, and wasteful living, moral impurity. The Greek word that's used here is used nine times in the New Testament. Six of those nine times it refers to sexual immorality. So it's just it's overall 
ungodly, um, unchristlike living, but um, six of the nine times it's used in the New Testament, it's referenced to sexual immorality. So it's not always sexual immorality, but we see for the most part at times it can be sexual immorality. But basically, these, these false teachers, they, they teach that you can stay in a place of sin and God is okay with that. There's no warning from them to turn from sin. Family, friends, repentance is part of the Christian faith. That when we come to Christ, we forsake our sin, we leave it behind, we repent, and we say, Lord, please forgive me. And then as we move forward in our Christian life, you know, the Holy Spirit's going to bring things to your attention where, where you're blowing it. And what does he expect you to do? To repent and bring it to his throne of grace. There, there has to be, in the Christian walk, a turning away from sin. Not perfection, because nobody's not perfect. You're not perfect. I'm not perfect. The mailman's not perfect. But there's this turning away from the old life where we're no longer running after sin, but we're running away from sin. And by God's grace, and by God's truth, and by God's love operating in us, he will bring us to full circle in our relationship with him from now until the day we step into eternity. Okay? But we can't, but again, Paul says, grace is not a license to sin. Grace is our ticket to leave the old life and to leave the sin behind. He told uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.19, he says, Nether, nether, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. And here it is. It's found in 2 Timothy 2.19 from my note takers. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. You know, again, we come to Christ. We come into our relationship with Christ. We have struggles. But then the Christian enters into what we call sanctification. And that, that, word, that big theological word, sanctification, just means you're growing and you're being set apart and you're trusting Christ more, you're pressing into him and he is delivering you from those things that gripped you before you became a believer. We don't turn the grace of God into a license of lewdness, undisciplined, or wasteful living. God has a standard. Peter says, be holy for I am holy. The Bible says, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Because when the, check this out, we love to talk about the Holy, being filled with the Holy Spirit, and I love talking about it, and I'm, I'm looking forward to January, eight-week study on the Holy Spirit on Wednesday nights, but part of being filled with the Holy Spirit is found in that first part of that name that we call him. Holy Spirit, he makes us holy. He makes us completely committed to him, and he breaks us away from the old life. In closing, these first four verses, which is just our introduction, we'll dive more into it next week, into the illustrations and the examples that Jude has for us. But in, in closing, it's, it's not just the pastor's responsibility. It's not just the apologetics or the scholar or the, the CIU graduate's responsibility, but it's the duty of every single believer to guard and defend the truth of Christianity. If you love people and you want them to come to know Christ and to experience true salvation, 
We are called to guard and defend the truth of Christianity. And as the theme of this book says, we are called to contend for the faith. If you truly love Christ Jesus, and he is your Lord, and your, and your heart is centered and focused on him, you will guard and defend and contend for the faith which was once and for all given to the saints. If you truly love the Bible, if you truly love the scripture, when you hear something that goes against it, it will, it will sound the alarm. You'd be like, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what the scripture says. And it's not, because you're, it's not because you're trying to be judgmental. It's because you hear error. And when you hear error, you don't like error. You want the truth. You, you want the truth. You know, you, you hear some of these TV preachers on TV spouting out things that, man, where in the world is he getting that from? You know, I had to take all my tools and put them in my garage. I can't have them around my, my living room because if I do, I'm going to smash the TV in when I hear some of these crazy things that they're saying. But we, we want things to be solid. We want things to be biblical. We want you guys to grow, to grow into being completely committed followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's our motivation, is to, to know the word, to know him, and to defend the faith. As we, last week, what did we look at last week? We looked at hospitality and taking care of people and, 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 and helping people in our community and, and helping the strangers and welcoming them into our home. This week and next week and possibly the third week, we will look at guarding and defending the faith, which was once and for all given to the saints. Amen? Let's pray. Father God in heaven, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for the book of Jude. And Lord, in these opening verses, Lord, um, wow, there was so much here. There was so much more we could have talked about. So Father, help us, God. Give us a deep desire to go home in this season over these next couple weeks, to go home and look at the book of Jude and understand that you put this letter in our Bible to protect the children that you love. It's, it's, it's like a family, the, the, the book of Jude is like a heavenly father, a loving heavenly father speaking to his children and warning his children of the dangers that are to come. If you saw one of your children doing something really bad or you saw danger on the horizon, what would you do? You'd go talk to them. And that's what our heavenly father is doing in this book. So, Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you for the book of Jude. Help us to learn from it. Help us to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' mighty name I pray, Father. Amen.